Well, thank you very much. That is humbling. Uh, Please open your scriptures to Genesis 39 as we seek to hear from God's word what he will have for us today. I do want to uh, tell you how much I, I missed you all. It's three weeks is a long time to be away, to be involved in this, in what we're doing here. Um, I just missed you all. So look with me at Genesis 39. Let's dive right into the text. This is a well-known section of Genesis. There are lesser known and, and greater known sections and chapters in Genesis, and this is one that that has uh, probably been in your life if you've been in the church uh, for a long time in your head. Let's look at it together and and ask the Lord to do something new with this text in our with our hearts. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was a handsome was handsome in form and appearance and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said lie with me but he refused and said to his master's wife behold because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything he has in my charge he is he is not greater in this house than I am nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men were in the house, there in the house, she, ca- she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. 
And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Father God, I implore you to speak to your people through this text. Help my words be your words. The challenges be your challenges to your people. The encouragements be your encouragements to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You have heard this said over and over again, perhaps even as a way to bring you to Christ. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We've heard that over and over again. And like I said, maybe that was something that, that the Lord used to spark that faith that he gives you to come to him. And now I want to tell you that each of those, each, to, each of the parts of what is said there is absolutely true. God does love you. God loves his children. The book that we, we hold in our hands, the book that we read during the week, the, this book that we treasure tells us that from beginning to end. It's, a, it's a really a love letter to us. God does love you. And he ultimately showed that love in Jesus Christ, right? In him coming, and as Aaron said so well and so effectively, and as, as my brother Stephen said so well in his prayer, we have a God who is willing to be torn apart for us, taking on our penalty and dying in our place. What greater love is that? Romans 5. So he does love us and God does have a wonderful plan for each and every one of our lives. That is true. But I think that part is where it gets a little fuzzy for us. And maybe a little misconstrued. What is that plan? I don't know how many times I've sat in my office with people and they say, what is the will of God for my life? They're just saying it another way. What's God's plan for me? How do we recognize that plan? What does that plan look like? That's the question that this chapter has in focus. What is God's wonderful plan for you? And what does it look like? And the first thing that we notice is that God's wonderful plan includes giving us blessings. God's wonderful plan for us absolutely includes giving us blessings. If we reach back to chapter 37 where Joseph is first introduced, 
we see Joseph's life is chocked full of blessings, don't we? He's the most favored son of 11. He's, he's given the ability to lounge at home while his other brothers work. He's given gifts by his father. That, that coat that we saw that's become so famous, the long-sleeved coat showing financial inheritance. And then there's the dreams. God even showed Joseph in his family that he was going to be blessed. He was going to be favored, right? Those dreams are not untrue. Maybe misinterpreted and, and the motive for saying them wrong. But the grain bundles bowing down to him and the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him. That was God's wonderful plan for Joseph's life. Blessing and honor. And that's what we think of when we hear God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, isn't it? That's really the drumbeat that we hear. God is going to bless me. Right? It's lollipop wishes and candy cane dreams. That's going to be the Christian life. It's all good. Stress-free finances, easy relationships, good health, and where there's no good health, certainly healing, physical and emotional protection. Basically, we think the plan is for what we think is good. Right? Even after Joseph is sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and he ends up in Egypt, in Potiphar's house we even see that he's blessed, right? A terrible thing happens, but look what happens to that. It kind of reinforces that understanding that it's all good. Joseph is extraordinarily blessed. Joseph rose to the highest station in that house. Look with me at verse 4. God's word says, so Joseph found favor in his, Potiphar's sight, and he attended him. And he made him overseer over his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From that time, he was made overseer in his house over all that Potiphar had. Joseph rose through the ranks to be the number one slave. He became trusted. As a matter of fact, verse 9 tells us that that. He is equal in privilege with Potiphar. He says to Potiphar's wife, I, I'm equal to him in my privilege. Maybe outstanding, but in the privilege. I lack for nothing. He's given some freedom and responsibility. Even in a bad situation, Joseph was blessed, right? And again, at the end of the chapter, after he's accused of a crime that he didn't commit and thrown in jail, even... There we see that Joseph was blessed even in that bad situation. Look with me at verses 22 and following. It says, And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all, he, all the prisoners who were in prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption, but Joseph's life kind of reminds me of The Shawshank Redemption, right? There, Tim Robbins plays a prisoner in Shawshank Prison named Andy Dufresne, who was imprisoned there because of a crime he didn't commit. 
And through the years in Shawshank Prison, Andy Dufresne slowly rises through the ranks to become the warden's number two man, right? His right-hand man. He was trusted. He was given, given freedom and responsibility. If I didn't know better, I would say that Stephen King read chapter 39 and just lifted the plot. Except for one thing. Except for one thing. In the movie, Andy Dufresne rises to prominence because of who Andy Dufresne is. His training. His business acumen. In other words, it was because of who Andy was that he rose. And that's the difference between Andy Dufresne and Joseph. Joseph, that is not so. And it's told to us, I hope you you heard it. If God says things, I think it was Steve that said, if God says holy, holy, holy three times, he wants us to stand up and notice. What about if he says something eight times in a chapter? It was the Lord who gave Joseph blessing. I mean, if you're a Bible underliner, just look at verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all he did to succeed. Verse 5, the Lord blessed him. Verse 5 again, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. Verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph. Verse 23, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Last words are important. The point scripture is driving home is that God's wonderful plan includes blessing. God wants to bless you. He desires to bless you. But the blessings come directly from God. That's what we we want to take away from this. Any and all success in life is directly given from the Lord. Let me say that again. Any and all success in life is directly given from the Lord. And that's a hard but humble place to come to. Now that doesn't mean you just sit around and wait for the blessings to fall to roll in. I mean, you have to you have to put this in the context of the rest of Scripture. One of the main main themes in the Book of Proverbs is what diligent work, right? We're to work diligently. Proverbs fourteen twenty three: All hard work is a profit, but mere talk leads to excuse me poverty. In fact, a huge, that's a huge theme in Proverbs. And Joseph obviously worked hard. Scripture also teaches us to honor those above you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart as if you were working for Christ. I don't think Joseph would have gotten very far at all in Potiphar's house if he was disrespectful to Potiphar. Scripture also encourages us to have honesty and integrity in our work. Proverbs again, 16.13, Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. 
Joseph, I'm sure, showed over the years integrity. When he said, clean up that slop bucket, it wasn't resting there the next morning. The point that scripture wants to make here is that blessing comes directly from the Lord. That's hard because our flesh wars against that, doesn't it? Any success that we have, instantly, where do we go? Must be because I'm good with people. Must be because I'm I'm pretty smart in the financial area. It must be because I went to the right school and got the right education that this man sees me and has promoted me. I, he sees my diligent work. My boss sees that. These are the things we tend to look at. As a matter of fact, these are the things that the world actually impresses on us and encourages our flesh to believe, right? But here... In this chapter, I think the Lord is speaking to us loud and clearly. Blessing comes because of God. It comes from his hand. I want to apply this to our lives, giving us three reasons why God's wonderful plan includes blessings. Why does God's wonderful plan include blessing us? And I think the first one is just you know, falling off the log type of obvious. He blesses us because he loves us. He loves us. The creator of the universe loves you. God's wonderful plan includes his blessing because of love. When Jesus was talking to the crowds that day on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, and here's the comparison that he's making, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? God blesses you. One of the reasons he blesses you is because he loves you. He wants to give good gifts. Who, what parent here doesn't think about that more or less with their children? How can I give them things that will bless them? Now, whether that's you know, physical gifts or, or investing in them relationally or giving them wisdom and counsel, whatever it is, we're thinking about how we can bless our kids. Why? Because we love them. We love our kids. I'm amazed always when I hang around new Christians. One of the things that I observe and perhaps you do too, is with new baby Christians how often God answers their prayers. Have you ever noticed that? It's kind of amazing. You know, I, I sometimes go, you know, in my flesh I go, well, I prayed that and that didn't happen. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm going into the mind of God here, but with 
dear little new children. It's like when you have a baby, maybe, a new baby. You, you just overflow your love to them, to encourage them. You hold them all the time, and you cuddle them, and you make sure their bed is perfect, and you make sure the, 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 the milk isn't too hot. God loves you. He blesses you because of it. Second reason is for his own glory. For his own glory. He blesses you for his own glory. And maybe this is where some of us have to mature a little bit in the faith. We want the credit. We want the spotlight. Right? Am I just talking about myself here? I want the spotlight. We want to take credit for the successes that come in our life. And that's why getting this right is so important. And that's why I think he says it eight times in this chapter. The blessing isn't because of you and what you do. It's because the Lord has sovereignly decided to bless you. Joseph was blessed, had success because of the Lord. Now you might argue that Joseph was a good slave, but we're not told an awful lot about that. What we are told an awful lot about is that God blessed him. It was from God's hand. And until we begin to live and breathe that truth, we'll always be tempted to take the spotlight and crank it around to ourselves. When scripture says over and over again, it's God who's supposed to get the glory. Our call to worship this morning, Romans 11, from him and through him and to him, to him be glory forever and ever. Our lives are lived for his glory. One of the greatest missionary movements in all of history was the Moravian Church missionary movement in Germany in the 18th century, the 1700s. It was predominantly led by a man by the name of Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. He lived from 1700 to 1760. He led the effort to send missionaries out to all parts of the world and encouraged extreme measures to reach people for Christ, including people selling themselves into indentured servitude to reach people. As Inzendorf would send each missionary off, he would leave them with these last words. Are you ready? This is the last words. Go, preach the gospel, then die, and be forgotten. Go, preach the gospel, then die, and be forgotten. With those words, he was reminding them that their lives are not about themselves. It's about God's glory. That's why they're going out there. Those are good words for us to remember when we are tempted to take credit for the successes and the blessings in our lives, to put the spotlight on ourselves. We have to remember that, like John the Baptist, he must become greater and I must become less. Third 
reason God blesses us is because of the bigger picture. God blesses us because there's a bigger picture at work here. Have you ever thought of that? That your life is literally, literally just a thread being woven in to an immense redemptive tapestry. That's your life. And when he blesses you, it's for a particular reason, for a particular purpose that not only has to do with that moment, but the eternal moment. We see that in Joseph's life, don't we? This is something that you can actually trace this thread. God blesses him with success, elevating him ultimately to the second in command in Egypt. Why? In order to save Egypt from famine. In order to save his family from famine. In order to bring them down into Egypt, into slavery. In order for the Jews to multiply there. In order to bring them out of slavery in grand fashion. In order to sustain them through the wilderness. In order to bring them into the promised land. In order to bring forth King David. In order to bring forth the King of Kings, Jesus Christ who was accused of a crime he didn't commit. Does this sound familiar? In order to die and take the punishment for the sin that we deserve and not to remain in that prison grave, but to faithfully suffer and then rise from the grave in glory. Triumph over death and Satan and sin and be elevated to the right hand of God the Father. That's the meta narrative that Joseph's little thread of blessing is in. Have you ever put your life in that context? Have you ever thought about that? What's the purpose for the blessings that God has given me? Well, it makes me comfortable and, and it makes life easy. No, what's the bigger redemptive moment? that is going on in your life because God does have a wonderful plan for your life that includes blessing for a purpose. How could God be using my life, be using your life in this meta-narrative for this meta-purpose? Often, I do actually ponder this personally and I'll tell you why. I from time to time, less now than I used to, would say, Lord, why did you bring this Connecticut Fairfield County boy who doesn't fish or hunt or own a gun, do dirt bikes or four-wheelers, a person who gravitates towards shorts and not long pants, a person who gravitates towards warmth and not cold, why did you bring him up here? That's a real question. And then I say, Blake, go. Preach the gospel. Then die. And then be forgotten. The thread in God's tapestry. But blessings is not all we have here. God's wonderful plan includes blessings and it also includes 
hardship. And that's the other part of the coin that we see here in Joseph's life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, The figure of a crucified, of the crucified invalidates all thought, which takes success for the standard. We'd like to believe that God's wonderful plan is always to bless us, right? We'd love that. Please, bring it on. I'll become a Christian. Everybody will become a Christian. But he sovereignly ordains hardship. Which is what we see in Joseph's life. He was the favored son. Chapter 37. Who was sold into slavery by his own blood. How hurtful would that be? He arrives in Egypt and Joseph doesn't know the language. Can you, can you make this live and breathe with me for a second? Imagine showing up in Egypt and you don't know the language and you're being pushed here and, and you're hearing things that you don't understand and pointed over there and you're sold to a household and you're told to do things that you don't understand what you're supposed to be doing in this little 17-year-old. Imagine the fear and terror and loneliness. Seventeen long years of that. Remember, chapter 38 is the 22 years that we take the Joseph narrative. Seventeen years of that. And just when things start looking up, okay, I have a certain modicum of freedom. I'm in Potiphar's house. He gives me a lot. Doesn't hold back anything. Boom. He's totally faithful. Totally faithful. And yet he lands in the dungeon. The palace dungeon. He's totally faithful. And we're going to get into this next week when we talk talk about Potiphar's wife and the temptation there. He's totally faithful. And he ends up in the dungeon. She grabbed him one day and told him that she was going to force herself on him. And he's faithful to God in that, isn't he? And it leads to dire consequences. There's a saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, Potiphar's wife was scorned. And so she set him up pretty good, didn't she? took his cloak, brought the men of the household in first and said, look, he was trying to rape me. And then she put his cloak next to her on the bed. And when Potiphar came home, she told the story all over again. And here's the evidence. And Potiphar throws Joseph into the palace dungeon. Not only does he lose everything that he worked for for 17 years, he's in a worse place than he started. I don't know if you've ever been in, in a dungeon. Uh, I was in one on Lake Geneva many, many, many years ago. Uh, the Chillon the there, the castle there, has a dungeon that actually goes below the water level there. And it's actually where some of the, the, the people were put in the Reformation to rot. And if you go into the dungeon there, it opens up and it's, it's damp, you know, water leaking in, moss, and there's a pillar in the middle with where a ring is. There's a metal iron ring where they were chained. 
And Psalm 105, verse 18, tells us that Joseph was chained foot and neck for two years. Imagine that. That's what Scripture... This is Scripture's wonderful plan for Joseph's life. Why do I say this? Because Joseph's life flies in the face of how we usually think. If you're faithful, then God blesses you, right? If you're faithful, if you do it right the way God says to do it, you're going to get blessed. But Joseph's life flies in the face of that, doesn't it? We think this is how it works. And Joseph's life tells us, no, that's not how it works. Ian Duguid in his commentary says it well. Serve God and everything will go well for you. You'll be blessed and so will everyone around you. Even if you have to go through difficulties, your trials will be only temporary and will issue in new and exciting opportunities to share the gospel. You may get sick, but God will heal you and make you better. One relationship might be broken and destroyed, but new and better one waits around the corner. Isn't that what it means for God to be with us? Isn't that what it means for God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? We expect that if we do things according to how God commands, our life will be blessed, right? I mean, that's what Proverbs is all about. The whole book dedicated to it. Live this way, right? Live this, do this, and your life will be blessed. And even if we live exactly as God commands, our lives don't turn out as we expect. That's why the book of Job is in your scripture. He was perfectly righteous, right? Not perfectly, he was a righteous man. And yet he lost everything. Ah, but you will say, in your mind, as you are countering arguments with the pastor, but it does work that way. If you read the end of Job, he gets everything back plus some. And look at Joseph's life. Look at how it turned out. Second only to Pharaoh. I think the Bible is trying to teach us a principle here. And the principle that this passage and others leave with us is this. Faithfully suffer, then glory. Faithfully suffer, then glory. That's our life. Because that's the li- what the life of Jesus teaches us, isn't it? He was actually perfect. He did God's will out of perfect motivation, loving God. As Stephen said, not because he wanted to get God's stuff, but just because he loved his heavenly Father. He, he, he was tempted in every way, every way but didn't sin, didn't succumb to it. Women grabbed him and said, come lie with me. We're not told that. He 
He obeyed out of perfect motivation. He resisted every temptation, yet his life was anything but easy. No home, no bank account, opposition everywhere, disciples constantly leaving him, even to the, even to the point of all disciples leaving him. Convicted of a capital crime and killed, perfectly faithful, yet punished. Sounds like Joseph's life. Perfectly faithful, yet he suffered greatly. You see, in this life, God's wonderful plan for us is to be faithful despite hardships. That's part of God's wonderful plan for us. And after that, glory. That's the basic pattern the scripture lays out time and time again. Faithful suffering, then glory. This is the trajectory that I just said is in Joseph's life. Slop bucket to second in command in Egypt. We see the trajectory in Christ's life. Faithful suffering, then glory. That's chapter 2 in Philippians, right? He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest, that every knee should bow, every tongue confess. Suffering, then glory. And that's the pattern of every disciple of Jesus Christ. Faithful suffering, then glory. That's God's wonderful plan for you. Side B, if you will. Faithful suffering, then glory. Pastor David Legg in his blog says, Christians miss the fact that suffering must come before glory. They recognize the Lord Jesus, but they don't want to recognize his method. They want a cross. They don't want the cross. They want the glory. And when we don't either know or accept this pattern of our life, I will tell you, brothers and sisters, you will be confused by life. You'll get angry at God and bitter roots will grow. If you don't understand this, pattern for your life, brother and sister. You will get angry and bitter. And confused when hardships happen. Because our expectation, if it's only glory, it doesn't fit into that pattern, does it? These are the last words that Jesus left with his disciples before he prayed in the upper room. So you have chapter 17, he prays for his disciples. The very last word he says before he bows in prayer, the last words that he wants his disciples to remember are what? 16.33 In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Do you see the pattern there? Faithful suffering... Then glory. The famous preacher D.L. Moody told about a woman, a Christian woman, who was confined to a room because of illness. She lived in the attic apartment of a fifth floor of an old run-down building. A friend decided to visit her one day and brought along another woman. And since there was no elevator, the two ladies began to the long climb upward. When they reached the second floor, the second woman who was invited commented, what a dark and filthy place. To which her friend replied, 
it's better higher up. When they arrived at the third landing, the woman made the same remark. Things look even worse here. Again, the woman that was traveling with her said, it's better higher up. When the two women finally reached the attic level where they found the bedridden Christian woman, they looked around and, and the room was a mess with just a, a pot of flowers sitting on the windowsill. The woman who was, who was brought along could not get over the terrible surroundings this bedridden woman was in. And she blurted out, it must be very difficult to be here. To which the woman, without hesitation, responded, it's better higher up. God has a wonderful plan for your life that includes blessings and that includes faithful suffering. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, I praise you that it's your job to apply this to the lives and to the minds and to the hearts of your people that you love so much. In Jesus' name, amen.